When Pastor Greg left, uh, or before he left uh, to go on this trip, we ended in James chapter 2, and we're talking about faith that works. And one of his exhortations to us as we, as he wrapped up was, guys, go read Hebrews 11. And we understand that, uh, or through this chapter, we understand and get an example of faith that works. That's the topic that we've been discussing in James. And so that led me to where we're going to be teaching today, where, where I'm going to be teaching today, where we're going to be reading and, and looking at today. But before we get to Hebrews 11 and looking at that, let's look at Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Are you there? Yeah, all right. You guys are a lot quicker now that things are on devices. I remember when I used to hear this. Yeah. (laughs) All right. All right, let's read. This is the word of God we're going to read right now. It says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is, I'm going to call him the pastor because, I mean, people will argue about who wrote this letter all day long. I kind of have my own opinions just because of certain things, but I'm going to call him the pastor. The pastor here has been talking to the church in Hebrews about faith. And he gives them all these examples. He actually took the whole beginning or whole first 10 chapters of this book to describe how much greater Jesus is than the old uh, ways of the law, the old um, ways of uh, serving through the temple and, and the law and the sacrificial system. He's pointing to how Jesus is a fulfillment and the greater fulfillment of it. And so he, he gets to this point where he's talking about all these people that saw, seized by faith. God's activity in their life. And what I wanted to do this morning, if you'll bear with me, I'd like to read all of chapter 11. Much like the songs that we play, we try to increase in a, a build in dynamics. It starts off maybe subtle and then it builds to an explosion. And I see that illustrated for us. There's movements in this and in, in how the pastor is relating all of these examples to the church. And it leads us directly into our scriptures for this morning. So if you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read through this, and I'll try not to stop. (laughs) Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, He had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, 
by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed. When he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called concluding that God was able to raise him up from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover in the sprinkling of the blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab did not, did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies in peace, with peace. And what more shall I say, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourging, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains in dens and caves of the earth, all these having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, 
God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I mean, how powerful is that? That these are the people that have gone before us, the ones who stand to testify of how great God is, that their whole lives were given over to him, that their faith worked, their belief in the word of God, their their conviction changed their life in that they operated differently. Some were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Some who entered in by following God's word into hardship could have turned back, and they didn't. But they continued to press on into what God had called them to do or had promised them he would do. And our pastor here writes, he says, Therefore, we also... He wants us to join the ranks of those who have gone before us in running the race of faith. You also jump in line. You can't read this without thinking of some sort of sporting event, you know, like a marathon or uh, some sort of Olympic event. You have all the the Hall of Fame, the greats that that have achieved all these world records and, and you can look at their lives and you can see every ounce of of struggle and trial, the thing that they press through, the, the amount of training and the, and the consistency, the endurance that they had to work at and how it shaped their lives and they're displayed in, in Hall of Fames, world record setters. And, and, and we're encouraged to join them. We also... We are in that race. If you've received Christ as your Savior, He has, and you've trusted Him, you've placed your faith in Him, you are in a race. And we're surrounded by this cloud of witness. This is this, the word used here for cloud, describing these witnesses. It's not just one cloud. It's not just these little floating ones. It's this massive cloud that surrounds us. The metaphor also refers to a great amphitheater with the arena for runners and the tiers upon tiers of seats rising up into the clouds or like a cloud surrounding. And the witnesses here is not those that are just watching us, They're not there looking at us. They're not just, the the word used here for witnesses is not just those watching us, but it's actually those who bear testimony from their own experience. And you can see this over and over and over again in what we just read. They're telling us that God is faithful to be trusted, to be our whole lives given over to him. God has shown himself to fulfill the promises. And if they didn't take part in having obtained the promises or received the promises, sorry, that's only because he's going to perfect us all together. We're not going to be perfected apart from each other. It was used of of those who had gone before us, this word of uh, witnesses to designate those who have proved their strength, the strength and genuineness of their faith in the Lord by undergoing violent death. It's it's where we get the Greek word, or our word martyr. They were referred to as um, martyrs, I guess. But these first century readers running their race, their Christian race, They're to have in mind all of these people that we have just read. 
testimonies and examples, urging them on to faith in the Messiah. So it's in light of this, these witnesses that we're invited to run. And by running, the pastor says, we need to do two things. And they're both connected. They're not necessarily separate. You can't do one without the other. But he indicates these things by the words, let us. He says, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This whole letter is actually filled with a bunch of these, that, uh, that phrase, lettuce. I almost said full of these lettuces, but that doesn't, makes me think of salad or something, you know. But he says, let us over and over and over. Actually, he says it 13 times in 12 verses in this letter alone. He, he compels us, or he is exhorting us as believers, he's exhorting the church of the Hebrews to do and to respond in light of the race we find ourselves in, in the, the cloud of witness that's around us. In Hebrews 4, 1, he says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Let's take, take, you know, assessment. Are we, go, are we entering into what God has provided? And there's a good sense of fear there. Let us fear that we're going to miss it. Because if we're going to fear that way, we're going to be compelled to figure this out, right? In verse 11 of 4, he says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same examples of disobedience. The disobedience of um, unbelief. In verse 14 of 4, he says, Seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We're exhorted to hold fast our confession in Christ, not wavering. In verse 16, he says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. We're to enter in and seek the grace of God. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Chapter 6, 1, he says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles, let us go on to perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and the faith and of faith towards God. In Hebrews 10, 22, he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In verse 23, let us hold fast the confession again of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. In verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. He's compelling, 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 all in light of what Christ has done. And, and there's truth attached to every one of these. And then we have our two from today. Let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Two things we're exhorted to do. Lay aside every weight and sin and run with endurance. To lay aside means to put off. It's a past tense statement with reference to uh, weight and ensnaring sin that had been taken off at some time earlier. This is something that we've, it's describing something that we've actually picked up and put back on. Something that, that God had freed us from originally and has found our, itself back into our life. It, it gives the image of laying off of old clothes. If you think even with, I'm just a creative and visual person. 
You know, we're, we're told that the Lord gives us garments of righteousness. And then we have this, this um, laying aside of old clothes. It, it's almost as if the person went and picked up the old clothes that God had, had uh, already taken off of them and replaced with, with pure righteousness. You start bringing in this stuff and it's a hindrance upon your ability to run. In, the, in history, when, when the Olympics had first started and, and they were competing, runners would almost essentially be running naked. And they, would, they had every ounce of anything that could hinder them was taken apart, taken off. Now we have such technology that they're basically naked, but they have clothes on, you know. Everything's so skin tight and aerodynamic and the guys are just, you know. They'll even, they go to the extent of shaving the hair off of their bodies to create less drag. Every little thing matters. And that's what, that's what our pastor says here. He says, lay aside every weight or every conceivable weight. The call to us here is to take inventory of what we have grabbed onto that is keeping us from running the race fully. Every weight. The weight, the definition or the uses of that word weight, it can mean a tumor, a mass, Magnitude, weight, burden, impediment, or a growth of the flesh. That's an interesting use of the word, right? The recipients here, one commentator wrote, the recipients are exhorted to lay aside every weight. The word is achgon, bulk or a mass. Hence, a swelling, superfluous flesh. The allusion, therefore, is to the training period preparatory to a race in which encumbering superfluity of flesh is reduced. Basically, he's saying, you're starting to work out and you're losing weight. You're getting up and you're running and you're starting to notice the pounds dropping off. But what are some of these growths of the flesh? What does God's word say about flesh? It's not pretty. Those in the flesh, they actually can't please God. It says in Romans uh, chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit... For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind or fleshly mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. How are we to continue on in the flesh and actually please the one who enlisted us in the race? How could we even run right? Those in the flesh, actually, they can't even walk properly. The, in Romans 13, verse 12, it says, The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Notice all the lettuces in there. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. We also see that those who practice the works of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the promise that all these forerunners that were looking toward, they were looking, what did it say, to a, a builder who's, um, he was looking for, uh, therefore God is not ashamed to be their, called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. looking for what God was able to do, those that are practicing the work of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
In Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, or parties of drunkenness, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's interesting looking at that list. You know, we usually think of just big sins when we think of of sin. We think of murder and, and, you know, adultery and fornications, but there's idolatry in there. Have we given place to idolatry in our life that's actually slowing us in our walk with the Lord, in the race of faith? Those who hold on to the flesh are holding on to that which God had freed them from. Remember, it's like putting on the old garments that God had exchanged when we came to Christ. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conduct ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. You see, there are a lot of big sins in in these scriptures I shared. But what about the small things that keep us from pursuing Jesus? They're just as detrimental. How is our time spent? Have we made ourselves too busy to even seek him, to pray? Is time spent on movies or social media sucking up our attention? Watching the news, concerning ourselves with the chaos that's happening around us. Are we more concerned with getting home and getting things sorted over spending time with God's people? As Christians, God has called us to be a community of believers. That's what the church means. It's a gathering together of God's people. It's not this. It's not this building, but it is the gathering together of God's people. What place does that occupy in your life? How committed are you to gathering together with God's people? We can give place to so many things that we think are important, but are really hindrances to us in our race of faith. It's interesting, though. We only know some of these things when we actually get up and begin to run. There's a commentator in the expositors that says, the Christian runner must rid himself even of innocent things which might retard him. And all that does not help hinders. It's by running he learns that what these things are. So long as he stands, he does not feel that they are burdensome and hampering. Thus, the word weight has the idea of encumbrance. Have you been standing still in the faith? Not moving forward in your walk with God. There are things in your life that you don't even know about that God wants to help you lay aside. It's in that standing still that we actually start, you know, you think about somebody who has gone through an accident and they've been laid up in a bed for a time. Muscles atrophy. Or somebody that doesn't exercise but continues to eat. Weight is put on. Very vivid images for what we're talking about today. And what does it say about the sin? 
It says we're to lay aside the weight that so uh, the weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. The sin in context of this book is the sin of unbelief. It's the greatest hindrance to the race. And it's interesting because with this portion of the verse, it says that it is it so easily ensnares us. It's ensnare gives the idea of a tight control, the sin which controls us so tightly. It speaks of sin which readily or easily encircles the Christian runner, like a long, loose robe clinging to his limbs. The sin may be any evil propensity. Here the context suggests the sin of unbelief, which was the thing keeping the unsaved recipients of this letter from putting their faith in the Messiah as high priest. You see, you can't even enter the, the race with unbelief. He was concerned, if you look, it, you can go back and read it, but in chapter 10, you get the, the point of why he's writing these things is that the church here was at risk of leaving Christ to go back to the, the old ways, the old laws. And the, it wasn't that they saw the laws as better, but they would actually escape persecution in the trials that they were going through by just going back. They were, they were tempted to embrace an easier life through unbelief. And I feel so, I mean, I know every one of you have experienced this in some way or another. I know I have. Life would just be easier sometimes. And then I'm reminded, I'm like the, the psalmist who said, man, why are all the, the worldly people, why are all they doing so well? And then I, I'm sitting here suffering. And then he says, he goes into the house of God and he's reminded, oh, they have no, no hope after death. They have no riches promised to them. I am a recipient of all those things. And then I'm brought back into reality in a sense. You see, the pastor wrote in chapter 3, addressing the unbelief, he said, Beware, brethren, he's talking to believers, talking to those he loves, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. What does that look like? In departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. What's the, what's the, um, what's he say there after that but? He says, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. He says, but what? Exhort one another. How can you exhort one another if we don't gather together? And you're not in the place of fellowship with the rest of the church. We have to realize that when we are not fellowshipping, we are off on the outskirts for the enemy to pick us off. We are out on the outskirts where unbelief can come in and tempt us to draw away. He says, daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold to the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Unbelief is not so much a hindrance as it is something that keeps you from running at all. It renders you most motionless with the picture of sitting. He now exhorts us to keep running. Let us run. Let us keep on running is what the exhortation is speaking to. But how so? How do we run? He says with endurance. And endurance describes patience and perseverance or constancy under suffering in faith and duty. 
This comes through running. Endurance comes with patience. It, it's not a sprint, but a steadily, but a steady moving forward, removing the things that hold back in order to run better. And he uses the words, the race. I've been using the words race. It's hard to not, because that's the imagery that's so ingrained in this passage. It's always actually translated fight or conflict, except for here. How interesting is that? Only here he relates it to a running, to a run or a race. But normally it's a fight or a conflict, something that requires your all to be engaged with. And how do we run this race with endurance? It's looking unto Jesus in verse 2. Look there at verse 2 with me. Let's read it. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How do we run with endurance? By looking unto Jesus. Looking away from everything which may distract, looking away unto God in everything small and great. One commentator describes this as to turn the eyes away from other things and to fix them on something. Look unto Jesus. To look steadfastly or intently toward a distant object. Even if it's used metaphorically, it's to behold in the mind, to fix the mind upon. That's what one definition was. And we see Moses actually is described in doing this in, in chapter 11. He says, by faith, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. He knew that God was a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. He knew that God had something laid up for him that was of greater importance, greater value than all the riches that he had. Moses was rich, guys. He was the son of the Pharaoh. He had anything he wanted. And he left it because he could see that Christ was more important. The opposite to look upon is to despise or ignore. The minute the Greek runner in the stadium takes his attention away from the race course and the goal to which he is speeding and turns it upon the onlooking crowds, his speed is slackened. It is so with the Christian. The minute he takes his eyes off the Lord and turns them upon others, his place in the Christian life is slackened and his onward progress in grace hindered. When I was working at the Y, uh, there, I always worked really early in the morning. And, you know, there's an older crowd that comes in around that time. And one of the guys that was coming in, the sweetest old man, his, his uh, wife had passed away. And he began coming to the Y for the community. He had a group of other guys around his age that he could hang out with and shoot the breeze. There were a lot of jokes said that they were solving all the world's problems in that little group. But one day he went in and for his normal routine and he was running on the treadmill. And I worked up in the front desk and all of a sudden somebody comes running around the corner and goes, Earl's falling on the ground. We got to help him. He's bleeding and stuff. And so we ran around the corner and we tended to his needs. And I'm asking him, Earl, what happened? What, what was going on? And he said, I just turned just a little bit and I lost my, my pace. And he fell on the treadmill and it kicked him off. Like one of those really hard hit things. What a visual. We too can become tripped up by taking off our eyes, our eyes off of Jesus. 
It says that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. This can also be read as leader or, and perfecter of our faith. He is the leader of all those who believe, our greatest example of living by faith. He is the one we look to fix our eyes, our gaze upon him, and he leads us to completion in the race of faith. He is the ultimate example of life and faith. And how so? It says that, who for the joy that set before him endured the cross. You see, Jesus, knowing all that it would cost him, still engaged in the race. Still went through with everything that the Father had called him to do. It's said of him that the heroic character of his faith appears in his resounding, uh, renouncing a joy already in possession in exchange for the shame and death. You see, Jesus didn't necessarily, this, ver- this verse isn't saying that Jesus looked to the joy of the cross. The cross was a horrible way to die. And it was a shameful way to die. But what it's describing is that Jesus left all joy to come down and go through that for us. He was already in the place of fullness of joy. The psalmist writes in Psalm 16, 11, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus already occupied that place, but in his following what the Father had called him to do, he left that place of joy to enter in and suffer for shame and death. He despised it. He despised the shame in order to please the Father who sent him. And we see that exemplified even in the, uh, the people that were mentioned. They stayed true to the Lord, even if it meant shame and suffering. Jesus, our ultimate example, his obedience was greater than what it would cost. And that was a shame that he didn't deserve. He was going to go through our shame for us. He was going to take our shame upon him. You see... The word talks about despising in this way. It says in Luke 16, 13, that no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. In that context, he's talking about serving God and then your wealth or possessions. But you see that Jesus despised the shame in order to honor the Father. And we are called in his example to do the same. Paul writes concerning the mind of Christ, concerning his affliction. It says, let this mind be in you, which you also, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but have made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's Philippians 2, 5 through 8. And then the pastor tells him to look at Jesus who has gone before them and during the cross. Someone wrote that, Theirs, the believers striving against sin was their battle against the temptation of renouncing their professed faith in Messiah in order that they might be relieved of the persecutions which they endured. His, Jesus' striving against, his striving against sin was his submitting to death of the cross with all that involved his becoming sin for us, the breaking of the time of fellowship between the Father and the Son. We sang that in one of our songs. The Father turned his face away. The wounds which mar the chosen Son. 
Bring many son to glory. I messed it up, I think. In the intense, in all the intense and awful physical agony of crucifixion. That's what Jesus went through. But here's the amazing part. This is where our hope and our faith is founded. It says that he has sat down. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Who being, he's talking about Jesus, who being in the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all the things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus has taken care of everything on our account. All the weight and the sin that we're holding on to, he has taken care of it so much so that he has now sat down. He's done. It's finished. That's what he said on the cross. Jesus having sat down shows the finality of his work of purging our sins. Nothing else needs to be added to our salvation. And he sat down at the right hand of God. This, the, the right hand described a person of high rank who puts someone on his right hand and gives him equal honor with himself and recognizes him as of equal dignity. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 64, it is as you said, nevertheless, he's speaking to um, Pilate at this time or, or um, the high priest. He says, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Hereafter, after he was going to die and be crucified, they were going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God, showing his equality and honor with the Father. A wonderful thing happened, though, when the Lord Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. He poured out the Holy Spirit on the church and his disciples. In Acts 2.33, it says, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. When Jesus died on the cross and went, ascended to heaven, and he sat down, he gave us the Spirit, the Spirit that lives within us, who have if placed our faith in him. We do not have to run this race in our own power and strength, but as believers have the power of the Holy Spirit to run the race that God has called us to. So in our running, we hear the Spirit say, let go of that, let go of this. Don't go there. Keep your eyes focused on the Lord. The Spirit is the one that will Propel us forward. He gives us the strength. We are called to stop holding on to the things that hinder us and fix our eyes on Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. In closing, I wanted to read a little uh, prayer out of uh, this book. It's called The Valley of Vision. It's called Need of Jesus. And it says... It's a prayer. This is just a collection of prayers. Um, they don't attribute any authors to them because it's not about the authors. It's about the Lord. But the, the prayer goes like this. Lord Jesus, I am blind. Be thou my light. Ignorant, be thou my wisdom. Self-willed, be thou my mind. Open my ear to grasp quickly thy spirit's voice and delightfully run after his beckoning hand. Melt my conscience that no hardness remain. Make it alive to evil's slightest touch. 
When Satan approaches, may I flee to thy wounds and there cease to tremble at all alarms. Be my good shepherd and lead me into the green pastures of thy word and cause me to lie down beside the rivers of its comforts. Fill me with peace that no disquieting worldly gales may ruffle the calm surface of my soul. Thy cross was upraised to be my refuge. Thy blood streamed forth to wash me clean. Thy death occurred to give me surety. Thy name is my property to save me. By thee, all heaven is poured into my heart, but it is too narrow to comprehend thy love. I was a stranger, an outcast, a slave, a rebel, but thy cross has brought me near has softened my heart, has made me thy father's child, has admitted me to thy family, has made me joint heir with thyself. Oh, that I may love thee as thou hast loved me, that I may walk worthy of thee, my Lord, that I may reflect the image of heaven's firstborn. May I always see thy beauty with the clear eye of faith. And feel the power of thy spirit in my heart. For unless he moves mightily in me, no inward fire will be kindled. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you've done. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being the supreme example, Lord, of, of walking in faith. We thank you for what you did on our behalf, Lord, to cleanse us and to, to remove our shame. Lord, that we might be able to enter this race with all those who have gone before us. Lord, pursuing, Lord, the promise of life with you. Lord, we ask that you would just continue, Lord, to open our eyes to your word, let, this, let your words, or let all my words fall away. Let all your words continue to, to stir up in our hearts throughout this week. And let us continue to lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily snares and run with endurance the race that is before us, looking unto you, the author and the finisher of our faith. We ask all these things in your name.